Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. There are thousands of trans or manuscripts for the original for the Bible. And in fact, there is no original version of any ancient text. One of the indictments people often bring about the Bible is, well, we don't have the originals. How do we know what they said? We don't have the original of Homer's Iliad or Aristotle's work or Plato or any of that stuff. And so we trust those things. Why wouldn't we trust this? And we we have thousands of full manuscripts and also over 25,000 fragments, some dating within just a couple of decades of their writing. There's nothing like this in human history. And so the version of the Bible we use, the English standard version is a version, a translation that is a standard version. And the way it's translated, they used the 300 oldest, most reliable manuscripts, compare them and use that to give us supreme confidence that what we're reading is God's word. It's simply a translation. And those old uh, manuscripts are within, like I said, one generation of the writing. People who would have read the originals could have read these and said, this is right or wrong. And when you compare that to those other documents, Homer's Iliad, which is the next closest, the closest manuscript to the original is 700 years later. And there's only a few dozen actual manuscripts of Homer's writing. So we understand that the Bible and the way it's translated is, it's, it's trustworthy. But thirdly, this story is in the majority of transcripts. It may not be in the earliest transcripts, but it are manuscripts, but it is in the majority of them, even if it's not necessarily original. And so the question is, is should we teach this passage? And I believe, yes, I believe we should teach this passage. And here's why. Number one is scholars almost unanimously believe this is a, it was a historical event. Unanimously believe that this event happened. And then secondly, it fits the heart and the character of Jesus. It not only fits the gospel story, it fits who Jesus is. And if you read Matthew 12, 18 through 20, you see the heart of Jesus. Jesus quoting Isaiah the prophet says, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. This passage highlights the compassion the mercy and the gentleness of Jesus. And you and I so want a Jesus who's not gonna crush us when we fail miserably. We want a Jesus who's not gonna crush us. And we see this heart in this text. Verse one, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and this was Jesus's pattern. He would go and he would teach among the people He would lay it all out on the line. He'd pour his heart out to them and he would return to a quiet place and he would be renewed with the Lord. He would spend time with the Lord. He'd pray with his father, be with his father. And that's a really good pattern for you and I as we follow Jesus. We're called to follow Jesus, join him in his mission, share the hope of Christ, love to send us back into the mission. This is what Jesus does. And then we see in verse two that he returns. It says verse two, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So Jesus spends time with the father, goes back to the temple again to teach. And we see that as he's going, all the people came to him. 
And so a little bit of the picture here is Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives and Jesus is, is very popular. Everyone's looking for Christ at this point and they see Jesus and they start to follow him as he's walking. They're like, oh, there's Jesus. And everybody's walking along with him. And the idea here, this is what a rabbi would typically do when he had a crowd following him is he would just begin to talk to them. He would teach them as he was going and get all the way into the temple courts. Uh, I love this story about C.S. Lewis. One of C.S. Lewis's students, John Lennox, who's a famous mathematician, uh, said of C.S. Lewis when he was at Oxford that the way that C.S. Lewis would teach is he would hit the back door of the classroom and the second he hit the classroom, he started teaching. So it'd be like if you guys were all in here and I was at the back door there and just started preaching, walking all the way up the aisle. That's what C.S. Lewis would do. He'd have his hat on, his coat on, his briefcase. He'd walk in, he'd begin lecturing. No notes. I'm just so jealous. I can't do that. He'd just lecture. He'd walk to his desk. He'd take his hat off. He'd take his jacket and his scarf and he'd hang them up. He'd put his briefcase to the side. He'd teach the lecture. And at the very end of the, of the class, he'd just do that all in reverse and then walk out the door. That's a bit of what Jesus is doing. He's teaching the entire way to the temple. And then it says that he sat down and he taught them. He sat in the position that a teacher would sit and the people would receive him or he would receive the people in the outer courts. And this was a very common public place for teachers to teach. And he sits down and he formally begins. And this was an easy place for people to find Jesus, including the scribes and the Pharisees who were hatching a plot against Jesus. The scribes were the supreme teachers of the law. The Pharisees were lawyers. They understood every little detail of the law. And they bring this situation to Jesus. It says in verse three that they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. They bring out this woman who is the epitome of busted. She is, she is caught red-handed. Literally, she is found in bed with a, a man that she is not married to. And you can imagine this woman's face. You can imagine this woman staring down at the dirt under her feet. You can imagine this woman embarrassed. You, you can imagine this woman is, a, is just disheveled. She's ashamed. She's a, a wreck emotionally, spiritually, morally. You could imagine that. Because if someone caught you in the worst thing you've ever done and put it on public display, you would be exactly the same. But here's hope for her and here's hope for you and there's hope for me. I borrowed this straight from Ray Ortland. He said, and this is our big idea for today, that the heart of Jesus is for us when we're caught in the act. The heart of Jesus is for you and I when we get caught doing the worst thing we could possibly imagine. And this is where Jesus's heart goes out to you. This is the exact moment that Jesus comes after you with the most fervor is when you are caught at your worst. And Ray Ortland again says that there's nothing more humiliating than seeing myself as I really am. But that is when my heart cracks open to the mercy of God. The moments that we are busted are the exact moments that God applies his mercy to our hearts. And the compassionate heart of Jesus in this text reveals three matters for us. Number one, it reveals the hypocrisy of the religious. Now, I don't just mean that religion's a bad thing, you know, that you know, morals are a bad thing, but when I'm talking about hypocritical religion, I mean those who believe that the rules make them right. If I follow a certain set of rules, it makes me right, and that certain set of rules makes me better than other people. Now, there's a very orthodox religious version of that. We're all familiar with it. Uh, and every religion in the world is basically, you do these things, you keep these laws, you don't do these things, and you're right with God and other people. You want to be a good Catholic or a good Buddhist or a good Muslim or a good Hindu, you, you do these things and you're right with God. 
And so we, we understand that one, but even if you would consider yourself not very religious, maybe this morning you're not a Christian and you're here and you're like, yeah, those religious people, they're all hypocrites. You're probably way more religious than you think because there is a very secular version and vision of this type of hypocritical religion as well. The days of you do you and I do me are over. The days of everybody can believe what they want to believe are over. There is a very clear secular vision that you better care about the right things. You better be about the right initiatives. You better be about this form of justice. You better do these things or you are on the outs and you are a bad person. And hypocritical religion says, if you do this, you're right. And if you don't, I'm better than you. And that's what these teachers were doing. They placed the woman in the midst, verse three, And they said to him, verse four, to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. They call him a teacher, a very respectful term, rabbi. But they wanted to challenge Jesus and draw him into a discussion because it wasn't a question of whether she was guilty. The woman was caught. It was a question of whether Jesus was going to judge her or not. Jesus, how would you address this ethical situation with justice? Now, a couple of things are really clear right out the gate when you read this. First of all, where's the man at? Anybody ever think about that? Where's the man? He seems to be absent. The last time I checked, it takes two people to commit adultery. Too often, there's a double standard for men and women in culture when it comes to sex and sexuality and shame, and especially in the first century. There was almost a wink and a nod toward men that, hey, you're just going to be promiscuous. You're going to have mistresses. You're going to do these things. And for women, they often bore the shame of that sin. They were both caught, but the man seems to find a way out of this. That seems curious, right? Secondly, this is a clear abuse of the law. If you look at verse five, it says, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, if you look at the original law that was pulled from, from Deuteronomy 22, it never says such a woman or such women. It just says such. In other words, such people. The original law is saying that whether you're a man or a woman, both of you are guilty. And the law did say that they should be stoned. So it's, a, it's an abuse of the law. Where's the man? But also this is mob justice. This is lynching. You needed two to three witnesses in order for someone to be able to be put on trial. You needed two to three eyewitnesses who would have seen this, caught them in the act, and for them to be able to give out the death penalty, it would have had to have been airtight evidence. It is clear this is simply a setup. This is a setup to trap Jesus. And as it says here in verse six, they said this to test him that they might have something or some charge uh, to bring against him. They're, they're, they're trying to set up Jesus and it's clear that they don't care about the woman. Peter Phillips says that she's nameless, partnerless, partnerless and defenseless. She's been used, abused by men again and again and she, here she is again. They don't care about the, ma- the man because they have no concern for justice or his righteousness. They don't really care about the law. They're just trying to put Jesus into an ethical jam because if he says stone her, he's in trouble with the Romans because only the Roman council could give out the death penalty. And if he doesn't do it, he's in trouble with the Jewish law. See, religious moral superiority turns you into the judge over others. And it is really easy to do. I'd make jokes about the show Hoarders all the time because when we watch the show Hoarders, and if you don't, if you, you don't have to admit it, but you probably have, um, you watch that show and say, I would never be like that. I could, I could never be that dirty. We're judging those people. 
we look at others and say, I would never sin that way. And typically when we, when we think about sin and the bad sins, they're usually the sins that I don't commit. They're the sins that other people commit. I look at someone else and think about the way that they vote or the policies they, they care about. I would never vote that way. You look at someone and say, I would never live like that. I, I care for the poor, unlike the greedy. And we can become morally superior thinking we're better than others. And we put ourselves in the place of the judge. So here's a question to expose your moral superiority. And like I said, we're all more religious than we like to think. What is something that you look down on other people for that you tend to be really good at? That when you do it, when you do right, it makes you feel better than other people. In the midst of this, to address our moral superiority, Jesus does something really curious. He, he gets to the heart of the problem. Verse six, at the end of verse six, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, that's a, that's a really, really curious detail. Why did Jesus bend down and write with his finger on the ground? Now, there's lots of theories about what Jesus wrote. Uh, one theory is that he wrote any litany of Old Testament verses about the removal of shame or about false witness or a false trial or injustice. Uh, some said that this was, he wrote down an indictment that, uh, that they didn't understand the law. So many, so many people have even thought that maybe he actually wrote down the specific sins of the Pharisees in the dirt. I think likely, and what the text is telling us is that Jesus was doing this as a delay tactic as a distraction. He distracts them because the focus shifts off of the woman onto Jesus. And in verse seven, they continue to ask him questions. They're thinking, this guy doesn't have an answer. Like, come on, Jesus, tell us whether we should judge this woman or not. And then Jesus violently turns the attention back on them at the end of verse seven, where it says, he stood up and said to them, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. The attention goes from the woman to Jesus to them and they have to look at their own hearts. Now, Jesus is not saying that you need to be morally perfect to call out sin. He's not saying that you need to be completely sinless or you can't challenge your friend who's a follower of Jesus. In fact, we should do that. That's part of being in community. If I love you and I see you walking in error, if I'm walking in error, you should address that. If I decide I'm gonna walk down the middle of High Park Avenue, you should drag me out of the road. He's not saying you have to be completely guiltless. He's saying that you can't be guilty of the same things and be the judge. Either you are abusing justice against this woman in such a way that you have no right to stand, her and con stand here and condemn her, or possibly if you understood the law, you would see your heart is not much different than hers. Because when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount and showed us that the law, the obedience to God is not just a surface action issue, but a heart issue, he said that if you're guilty of looking at a woman with lust, you're also guilty of adultery. And what that does is it convicts all of us that we all fail sexually. The Bible has this beautiful vision for sex that it is so sacred, that it is so beautiful, it's so lovely that none of us can actually live up to it. That it's something that is designed for the covenant of marriage because it's something so precious that it, it needs a forever relationship with someone who's not looking at other options. Someone who's not looking for something better where there's security and care, exclusivity forever. And this is why God has given us marriage between a man and a woman to express this. And that anything else actually leads us to harm. He shows them that their hearts are just as messed up as hers. And in verse eight, it says that he goes back to drawing in the dirt. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So Jesus just drops this truth bomb on them and goes back to doodling in the dirt. 
And in verse 9, each one of them begins to examine their hearts. It says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, that they began to, to, to look at themselves. They look at their own lives honestly. They look at their own failures. And we see the older ones set the example because the older you get, the more failures you've stacked up. You realize just how much, how messed up you actually are. I, you know, I, I'm 41. I am no longer 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Like I realize I have a litany of sins and, and mess ups. Each one walks away one by one thinking, I can't be the judge. And if you look honestly at your own life, you have way too much to work on to worry about condemning others. This is the antidote for moral superiority. If God were to rightly judge me, and I don't, I'm not even talking about you right now, I'm talking about me. If God were to judge me alone, I deserve condemnation. I deserve separation. I deserve death. That's what I deserve. But here's where the good news comes in for not just me, but for you. One thinker said this, he said, how did God write the law on the tablets? I think that's, that's something curious to think about. Exodus 31, 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Jesus is showing us that he is the author of the law and he's the only one who can give both justice and mercy. So lastly, I want us to look at the help that Jesus offers. Verse nine, at the end of it, we see that the woman is alone with Jesus, probably the first time that she's been alone with a man who didn't want something from her. And, and he stands up and he looks at her, looks her in the eyes. He's not accusing her, but he's a safe place for sinners like her and me and you. A safe place for the guilty to come and receive free mercy and forgiveness. And he begins to press in. He says, woman, where are they? Woman was a tender term more along the lines of ma'am. He actually dignifies her. Where are they? No one, has no one condemned you? They're all gone. They literally abandoned her. She is safe with Christ alone. And then you begin to see how Jesus really wants her to change. He's not just gonna let her off the hook. He wants to change her. He says at the end of verse 11, 11 he says, neither do I condemn you, Go. And from now on, sin no more. You have to understand what Jesus is doing here. It has to be both. It has to be grace and it has to be change. He, he didn't stop at neither do I condemn you. He doesn't say, look, it's, it's not a big deal. I, you're, you're fine, you're off the hook. That, that's grace without a call to change because this woman's guilt is eating her alive. And it would actually be cruel of Jesus to say, look, it's okay. It's, it's a small thing. Don't, don't sweat it. He has to change her to ultimately rescue her out of this. But he also didn't say, just say, stop sinning. He didn't look at her and say, look, you really were almost in trouble. From now on, don't sin anymore. He doesn't say that to her. That's no mercy in all rules. The problem with that is it doesn't deal with her past guilt. If you solely promise to do better, if you, if you know you've messed up in the past, and you're like, from today forward, I'm just gonna always be better, you'll always be motivated by guilt and not by grace. And guilt is a terrible motivator. Guilt is, is a terrible motivator because it will never feel like it's quite enough. Every single time you think you get there, the goalposts are gonna move a little further down the road. It can't be all compassion and it can't be all, all law. Tim Keller says, if you have absolute compassion, you relativize morality. In other words, it really doesn't matter what you do. And if you have absolute morality, you crush people. 
It has to be both merciful and redemptive. But it also has to be in the right order. Notice that Jesus didn't flip the order here. Jesus didn't say, okay, if you go and sin no more, you'll be free of your condemnation. If you go and sin no more, I'm not going to condemn you either. There's actually a very soft version of that that has infiltrated the church is when we go to the church, it's sort of like a soft prosperity gospel. If I do the right things, God will bless me. If I spend my money the right way, God will bless me. If I give enough money, God will bless me. God will give me favor and make us right. And all that is, is a way to try to outwork your guilt. But here's the beauty of Jesus's help. All your guilt can be taken away and you can really change. It's both. There's no other message like this, that there is justice for your very real sin and there is grace for your very real need. And look, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He never says that she's innocent. He never calls this a mistake. He never says this is a blip in her character. He says that she needs a wholesale change that only he can provide. And what he does is he throws his arms wide open and welcomes her to come to him. You can be forgiven. You can be made whole. Your shame and your guilt can be dealt with. And the proper response to grace, his mercy is always a call to righteousness. In fact, the way that the NIV translates from now on, sin no more is leave your life of sin. That there is, you gotta quit your sin, uh, your sin as a practice. You have to run to the living water that Jesus promises. And what he does is he changes your motivation to obey him. Tim Chester says this. He says, we also have a new motivation to battle with sin. We're no longer under law, but under grace. This is counterintuitive. People think that law and legalism will best motivate us to strive to do what's right, but it's grace that enables us to live for God. How does Jesus promise this? How can Jesus give both grace and a call to change? It's because he's looking forward to the day when he would be condemned instead of her. He's looking forward to the day that he could be condemned so that he could look back and say, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. His future work on the cross is applied to her worst moment, her worst moment of guilt and shame. And on the cross, Jesus took your guilt, he took your shame and he bore it so that you wouldn't have to be condemned. Jesus is a safe place for sinners like you and me to come and to live and to change. And there's no better place to be than with Jesus. So how do you need to respond this morning? Maybe you're seeing your need for the first time. Maybe you've been carrying around guilt and shame for a really long time about some things that you've done, or maybe even things that have been done to you. Jesus is a safe place. He wants you to come to him. He wants to free you, take away your condemnation and help you change. Secondly, maybe you're caught in a sin that's just wrecking you. Maybe it's been years of bitterness or anger or lust or, and you're just exhausted. You're just tired. Come to Jesus and receive freedom. This is a promise, not just for those who aren't followers of Jesus yet. As believers, we can be tra trapped in patterns of sin for years. He wants to free you. Maybe today's the day you lay down that old sin forever. Come to Jesus, who is the safe place for people who've been caught in their worst acts. Let's pray. Let's pray.